Heavenly Father, we just come before you and ask you to take this service time, instruct us from your word, give us grace to hear, to understand, and Lord, to apply your word to our everyday lives. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And turn to Galatians chapter 4. And uh, I'm not sure, it just sounds a little loud tonight. Maybe turn me down just a little bit, Brother Zach. I don't want to get going too loud here and hurt somebody's ears. But uh, uh, Galatians chapter 4 is where uh, we are at. And what Paul is doing is he is challenging the Galatians, he is presenting arguments to them that they should not. Why would they want to go back and be under the law? And and so we found that the purpose of the law is, number one, to convict us of sin, to show us, to prove to us that no one is good enough to go to heaven and that the true heirs of the blessings of God, the promises that were made to Abraham, were by faith, not by works. And that the law filled that time, and that the true heirs of Jesus Christ, have of the faith of Abraham, are not those who just fulfill the outward requirements, but it's those that God has done a work in the heart. That's where faith comes from. Faith is believing God's Word to the point that you act upon it. God's Word goes in. It changes something here. It goes out in changed behavior. That explains James chapter 2. Uh, that's why I've never been a fan uh, of the Protestants and things. Uh, they weren't wrong about everything, but no one is. Uh, but Mr. Luther uh, did not even want to translate James chapter 2 and, and put it in his Bible because he could not understand what James 2 was talking about. What James 2 was talking about, if you have a living faith, it's going to produce living works. That, that's how simple it is. And yet, he was so conditioned by the works-based salvation that was in the Catholic Church, which he was raised in, that, that he was so reactionary, he didn't want the words works and faith in the same sentence. And yet, it's in our Bible for a reason. Because you were never, ever... Saved by works. I know there's a preacher, he, he claims to believe the Bible, and he spends a lot of time trying to prove that you're saved different ways in different dispensations. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we're always saved by grace through faith. And faith that is a living, working faith will produce works in response to the Word that God has given you. Aren't you glad that you don't have to build an ark in order to prove that you have faith? It took Noah 120 years or so 
to build that ark. Most of us don't have that long. In fact, I doubt anybody in this room is going to have that long. And that, that's how long he spent building the ark. Why? Well, read Hebrews chapter 11. It was by faith. God told him to build it, and he built it. But if I have faith, I don't build an ark. Nor do I take my sacrifices to the temple in Jerusalem, because there isn't one there now. Uh, and that's not the only reason. Because the Bible tells me Jesus has fulfilled every sacrifice. Now, I can't wait until we get to the millennial kingdom because I believe that's where the temple of Ezekiel fits in. And those sacrifices will not be done as they were in the Old Testament looking forward to the sacrifice of Christ but they'll be done exactly the opposite way, looking back to the finished work of Christ. And so, we have no contradiction in the Bible, and yet they were trying to make one. And his first argument here is the place of the heir versus the place of the servant. And we went through last uh, uh, Thursday night how that even though uh, the young man is the king, is the owner of everything. It's not his until he gets of age. That's what the law was. It was our schoolmaster. We are no longer under the schoolmaster. We're supposed to know the lessons. Amen? Faith, the teaching of the life of Christ, teaches us that we don't need the works of the law. And the true faith in Jesus Christ, in the promises it made to Abraham, that is our connection. Now, I've been told by some uh, over the years that you can't believe in a true perpetuity of churches because you don't have a direct genealogy that descends from church to church and church. The historical records are gone. No one can prove that. Therefore, there's no such thing as a real church. And that's what they say. Well, if I can be a son of Abraham by faith, can I just trust God for the history that we don't have? Do you see a parallel there? I mean, I do. Because I want to, amen? Uh, but I see a parallel there that when God says something, He's going to make it happen. And we don't have to have everything written out on a piece of paper because I have this book here that goes back to the first century. And if I'll do what this book says, that's my connection. Amen? You see, God didn't make me responsible for things I can't be responsible for. How many of you have ever seen one of those websites where you, you click in and you type in your name and it'll give you your family heritage and all back to all these generations? You better be careful. You might find out that you had some family that you really don't want to identify with. Uh, I mean, with a name like Montoro, 
technically, as far as I understand, if you have the same spelling, I'm related. I've only met one other person just out. I was shopping in a store and and one of the sales clerks there had a badge on and said, Montoro. I said, is that your real name, uh, Montoro? And she said, well, um, I think it used to be spelled M-O-N-T-O-U-R-O or something like that. She had another letter in there somewhere. I said, oh, okay. I said, if it was originally Montoro, I said, we're related. My brother said he found some Montoros in Chicago, but they lived in that part of town that if you were an honest citizen, you just didn't want to go in. And I said, well, we're just, I, I heard there were some that weren't that good, so we're just not going to find But you better be careful. You might dig up some stuff that you wish you hadn't dug up. But does that change who you are? If your great-grandpa was a horse thief and they hung him from the nearest tree, does that change who you are as a person? No, it doesn't. You see, we're responsible to God for our life. Amen? And Paul is trying, first argument, you're an heir through faith to God Because of the work of Jesus Christ, now why are you trying to go back and act as if you were a servant or as if you had not come to age? You turn over the rights to your inheritance to those who will take control of you and tell you all of these things. Paul says, this isn't the way we ought to live. If you're an heir, you ought to live as one. You ought to live as a child of the king. And then the next one was, listen, do you not see the pattern that is being carried over from before you were saved? Every religion in the world has a list of to-dos. Now, they fight wars over the to-do list, don't they? They have in the past. And Paul says, now that you're saved by faith, are you just going to trade your to-do list for another one? This is not what the truth is about. And then we come to the third argument here. He ends that second one by saying, I'm afraid of you lest I bestowed upon you labor in vain. It wasn't that he believed that the Galatians would lose their salvation. But I'll tell you what, there's a lot of verses in the Bible that says... A lot of people are going to think they're saved, but they're not. This has led to one other error that we just need to touch on. And uh, this error is called a progressive salvation. That you get saved a little bit and a little bit and a little bit. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. You get saved all the way at the moment. That's why it's called being born again. But once you get saved, you've got to grow. In the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. But what is the answer for someone who has made a false profession of faith? I'll tell you what the answer is. It's the local church. Because you keep coming back and you're going to keep being faced with the Word of God. 
until the Holy Spirit and the Word of God have time to do the work that needs to be done. Amen? That's why the church is so important. It does not give you salvation. It gives you the Scriptures and so that you can go to God and get salvation. Amen? Now Paul is going to take a different turn here. And verse 12, he says, Brethren, I beseech you, I beg you, be as I am, for I am as ye are. Ye have not injured me at all. Now, Paul is taking a personal turn here. And what he's going to do with these next few verses is he is going to bring to them a personal appeal. And if we're not careful, we'll get confused by the wording here in verse 12. But Paul is simply saying, I want you to be as I am. Now, how was Paul? Paul was standing firm in faith and in freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, who had kept all of those laws and those regulations, he talked about that in chapter 1, he was more zealous uh, of the traditions of the Father than any person who was living in his day. And that was quite a claim to make by the Apostle Paul. But it was backed up by his life and his other testimony in Philippians chapter 3 and even in the testimony when uh, uh, Paul was brought before uh, the Roman governor there the second time. He said, much learning doth make thee mad. Uh, he said, you're crazy. He said, you've learned so much. Well, why would he say it? Well, because Paul knew every tradition of the Jews. He knew all the verses of the Scripture. And he was teaching and preaching faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul had a wealth of knowledge that even the Roman governor, unsaved and uncaring as he was, had to take notice. And so, Paul here is saying, listen, I want you to stand firm in the faith. He said, I'm a man, I'm just like you are. What he's really saying is, you and I shared the same salvation when I came the first time. What has changed? He's saying, your injury is not to me. It's kind of reflecting of the words that God gave to Samuel when the king, children of Israel wanted a king. He said, Samuel, they've not rejected you. They've rejected me. Paul says, listen, you haven't injured me. The, your mistake is not hurting me. It's hurting you. And then he goes on to say, Ye know that how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation which was in my flesh ye despised not nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness ye spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, ye would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Am I therefore because become your enemy because I tell you the truth. Now look what he says. He says, you know, when I came and preached, I had an infirmity of the flesh. Now, I've heard preachers preach entire sermons on Paul's infirmity of the flesh. 
The only problem is we don't know what it was. I mean, we would believe by the context and the things that it was said here was it was something that had to do with his eyes. Because he said, listen, I bear your record. If it had been possible, you would have given up your eyesight that I could have, uh, that I could not have this problem, this physical infirmity in my flesh. And yet, if we'll read in the book of 2 Corinthians, what does Paul say? He said, I prayed three times that this thing would depart from me. And what was God's answer? No. He said, my strength is made perfect in what? How many of you know the verse? Weakness. How many of you know that passage? Okay, most of us do. Paul said, listen, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, if you need to look it up later, it's not in your outline there, but Paul said, when I came, there was nothing about me. In fact, whatever this personal, this physical problem he had was visible enough to be somewhat offensive and somewhat uh, uh, uh repulsive, we might say, that you would want to step back if you've ever seen someone that has something that you think you might catch. What do you do? Uh, You just want a little distance. I mean, we know all about germs in this day. They didn't know about germs in Paul's day. And Paul said, you still receive me as an angel of God. You receive me as if I were Jesus Christ. Why? Why? Not because Paul had some special power or magnetism or personality, but because he had preached to them the truth and they had received it. We, we, I spend a lot of time reminding you that there is no such thing as a universal invisible church because it applies to so many areas of your Christianity. But I want to tell you, there is a brotherhood, a sisterhood in Jesus Christ. You can go anywhere on this globe and find people who believe this book called the Bible. And you're going to find friendship, and you're going to find love, you're going to find agreement on things. You know why? Because we serve the same Christ. And this is what Paul is trying to tell them. He said, we had that love relationship going. We had that special care one for another. I mean, uh, I, I want when missionaries come, I want them uh, to feel like our church loves them. Amen? I, I want them to know that we do more than just write them a check every month. Because that's part of it. Uh, I hope you understand how much our church really owes to Brother Clayton. I mean, he, is, he has done so much for us over the years. And, and uh, I, I just praise the Lord that we were able to be a blessing to him, an encouragement to him in the ministry. 
He, he likes to come here. Uh, and uh, we, we want him to do that. Amen. And Paul was talking about, he said, we have that. He says, but now that I'm trying to correct you about this thing in your life and this decision, this change in your doctrinal position, am I now your enemy? I mean, stop and think about it. It's a hard thing to endure correction, is it not? I mean, most of us, uh, we, we live in a society where if you have an issue at work or something like that, you know what they do? They lay you off. They fire you. And just let you go somewhere else. Uh, if you're a boss, you know that's the easiest way to handle the problem. Is just give it to somebody else. You know, we don't have that option in the church of Jesus Christ. Because there's this person called the Holy Spirit of God that's supposed to change us on the inside. He is the one that does that work of conforming us to the image of Christ. And, and Paul is looking at them and, and, and through the words of his letter, and, and he is trying to get a hold of them. He's trying to get right in their face. And he said, now listen... I'm calling you out on this thing because you are wrong. Now, you've got one of two choices. Either you can make it right or you can consider me your enemy. He said, but I think you know which choice is the right choice. I mean, that's inferred here. That's understood here. And Paul is trying to, uh, for this personal love, and he goes on. And he's trying to wake them up and let them see something here. Verse 17. They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that ye might affect them. But it is good to be zealously affected, always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. Can you hear Paul pleading with them? You see, one of the things that we have, I have worked very hard on as the pastor of this church, and I will just be very plain, most of you as members don't know, and that's one of the reasons why I've been working. There, there are what we call fads in Christianity. Uh, there are super personalities, even in Bible-believing circles. And they come in and they draw a bunch of people to them and they have this cause and, and everybody kind of rallies around until they get tired of the cause or someone with a better personality and a better cause comes in and, and 
You know, and, and there have been, it, it ends up like in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where they say, I'm a Paul and I'm of Apollos and I'm a Peter. And, and uh, uh, we, we've often called them uh, Baptist popes, uh, meaning that they, they grab a little following and they build a little kingdom and it's built on personality and charisma or uh, sometimes it's uh, a, a great cause. Uh, I believe in all those things. But I'll tell you what. Zeal has never been, nor will it ever be, a measure of truth. That's what Paul is saying here. He said, we had a very special love relationship to the point to where there are there were people in this church who were willing to lose their eyesight if it were possible so that I could be benefited. I, I understood that love and we enjoyed that love relationship. And now I've got to tell you, you're doing something wrong. Am I your enemy? He said you were zealously affected. You got all caught up in this thing. Uh, let me just give you one example. Back in the early 70s, uh, one of the fads of Christianity, uh, as it turned out to be, was what we call the Christian school movement, where churches started schools. And almost every church uh, that believed anything about anything, they had a school uh, there at the church and... What happened was, was many parents said, Oh, we got a school at the church. They're not going to learn about evolution. They're going to learn about right things. They're going to learn how to love God. Uh, the preacher is there to teach them every day. They got chapel services. I'm going to take them and I'm going to put them in the school. And then dad had to go out and get a second job, or maybe mom had to go out and work. And all of a sudden, There wasn't as much time at home as there was before. And then they get into high school and, listen, we we want to have a good Christian school. And there's some people that got into this philosophy is we're going to have a better sports team at the Christian school than they do at the public school. Let me tell you something. Sports has never built one bit of character. Uh it's shown up quite a few. I mean, I mean, there's been quite a few characters involved in sports. Uh, but it hasn't built character. Sports doesn't build character. You want me to tell you what builds character? Time with mom and time with dad. That's what builds character. Learning how to live every day. You see, anybody can show up on the court if they are genetically mutated enough and uh, do whatever fantastic thing needs to be done to make the points or to run the ball. Uh, if, you, if you are a winner at the genetic lottery, I mean, there are people that just have physical ability. I, I know that is true because I don't. Uh, I, I never had. I mean, I could get out there on the thing. When I was in high school, I was one of the tallest kids in my class. But it didn't do me one bit of good. 
I mean, I could get rebounds most of the time, but that was about it. I, I, was, uh, I, I played my favorite position, left out. Did you know that was in basketball and baseball and, and every other sport? You can, you, they have that position. That means you're sitting on the bench while all the, all the important people are playing. And, uh, but I don't know how we got this far afield, but uh, we'll, we'll get back eventually. But the simple truth is, we had all of this resentment against the public school. And yes, I'm against what goes on in public school. But these churches took so much of their ministry toward a public school that the heroes of our children, and I know because I was there, it was, it stopped being the missionary and the pastor. And it became the guy that showed up with the money to buy the uniforms for the sports team. And it was the youth director who would say, the pastor's an old fuddy-duddy, he doesn't know, let's go have fun. And that kind of stuff destroyed the church. You see, the main thing a church has to do is be the body of Christ. That's what it's supposed to do. Amen? Education of your children. I, I wish we could have a Christian school, and I would. We have to have two things that have to happen. Number one, there's got to be enough money in the bank to pay the teachers without charging tuition. Because if you don't do that, you're always chasing the money. And number two, we need a quarter of a million dollars just to get started at the building department so we can hang the word school on the outside of the building. You have to have a place to meet. And uh, I don't think that we'll ever get to those two places. Because if somebody came up and said, Preacher, here's $250,000, I think what I'd do is I'd come to the church and I'd say, we got this mission project, this mission project. This guy's building the building. They're trying to put a new dorm up at Heartland. Uh, let's, let's get rid of this money before the government comes and takes it. Amen? Uh, I believe that's what we ought to do. And, and here's what was happening is they were zealously affected for the law. And everybody was going and trying to be as Jewish as they could. And they were ignoring the faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, listen, zeal is not a measure of goodness and truth. It's easy. I was talking to someone a couple of weeks ago. I said, every time a missionary comes, I feel called to go to their field. But that's the difference between a burden and a call. You see, I can't go to their field because I've got too much to do right here. This is my calling. And so what we'll do is, as a church is we'll send them. Amen? And uh, I appreciate what Brother Newberger is doing and all the effort that is going into North Brooklyn. And I want our church to pray. It's going to be a battle that's going to be won on our knees. But I'll tell you what, I can't go to North Brooklyn. 
That's why Brother Newberger's going. And we need to pray that God will bless him. That church needs some roots. It doesn't have any yet. It needs some people that will come in and become members and, and start making things happen there. And we're having every appearance that that process is actually beginning after two years. And I want you to keep praying. Amen? Pray like you never have before. But zeal is not a measure of truth. Just because you get excited about something doesn't mean you're doing the best thing. I wonder what would have happened to my generation if the parents had stayed at home and trained their children. I have to believe that it would be a whole lot better than what actually happened. And so, what Paul is doing here, he's saying, you got all excited about this, but it's not good. He said, they would exclude you that you might affect them. Now, here is the key to the whole thing, is they need you to sign up to their program to make their program look good. Because if nobody signs up, then they're nobody. I think I've told this story before. Peter and I were standing on a corner up there, Dittmar's and 31st, and the guy on a Harley goes, right through the intersection. And I said, Peter, what's everybody doing right now? And of course, Peter's very observant, and he just looks all around. He said, they're all staring at the guy on the motorcycle. I said, that's exactly correct. But is anybody following him? He said, no, nobody is. Well, if we can apply it to this passage, that's the difference between zeal and truth. Makes a lot of noise. Everybody's attention. Remember back to Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Who hath bewitched you? Who hath mesmerized you? Who hath absorbed all of your attention away from that which is true? You don't understand. I have a a friend, I I counted him as a close friend when we were back in Cleveland many years ago. And and he's trying now, his entire focus is on trying to get a constitutional amendment that says parents need to be parents. Now, I believe that with all my heart. Is there anyone that would like to argue that point? But the Constitution of the United States is not my authority for being a parent. This book is. And I'm not going to waste one moment of time and one dollar of money trying to make a constitutional amendment when I've already got God's opinion on it. If they won't listen to this, they're not going to listen to that. Those that are old enough to remember the first election of Ronald Reagan as president, if you understand your history correctly, humanly speaking, Ronald Reagan's first election was the work of one man. His name was Jerry Falwell. He was humanly responsible for putting Ronald Reagan 
in the White House his first term. He organized a group of people from all over uh, the United States, all over the religious realm. They called themselves the moral majority. And it had everybody from Catholic priests to Baptist preachers and every ism and schism. If you were against abortion, if you were against immorality, if you were uh, against the things that were going on in our society, and, and most people were in 1980. The vast majority of this country was against all of those things. And he organized that vote and got those people out and they put Ronald Reagan in the White House. And I'm glad. I believe he is the greatest president in the 20th century. Without any questions, if you study American history. But if we have a moral majority, we just send a moral majority to hell without the gospel. You see, they affect you. They get you excited about something. They get you all worked up that you're going to do something. All your effort is being poured into this thing. But it's not well. You see, they want you to follow them so that you will give credence to their cause. Because if nobody's following you, You're just like the guy on the Harley with his loud pipes wide open. You're making a lot of noise and everybody's staring, but nobody's following. And Paul says, listen, that's not the cause of Christ. That's not the way we're supposed to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, it is good to be zealously affected. You ought to have a zeal in your service for Christ. But I'll tell you, it's a whole lot easier to get people excited about stopping abortion than it is to get people excited about talking to their neighbor about coming to church on Sunday morning. It's a whole lot easier to have a big rally and say, we're against uh, sodomite marriage. But it's a whole lot harder to get people excited about trying to win that person that you work with every day to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said it's good to be zealously affected. And what Paul is saying here in the next phrase is, I don't have to be there. He says, I remember how zealous would you have to be to be willing to give up your eyesight for the preacher. I mean, that's pretty zealous, isn't it? Uh, that, that would be extremely sincere if we want to use a modern day word for it. And Paul says, listen, it's good to be zealous. It's good to be sincere. It's good to be excited about this thing. But zealousness that's not attached to the truth is just going to drag you that much quicker away from Christ. And he says, I don't have to be there because I'm not the judge of truth. 
He says, My little children, I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you because Jesus doesn't behave this way. Jesus is not taking you back under the law. He died on the cross to free you from the law. You are not a servant anymore. You're a joint heir of God through Jesus Christ. You are not uh, trading your to-do list. You are to serve Christ out of a relationship with, of love. And he says, I stand in doubt of you. He said, I wish I was there. I wish I could talk to you and see the look on your face, but I can't right now. He said, I stand in doubt of you because that's not what real Christianity produces. Real Christianity produces Christ-likeness. Amen? I've heard all my life, you've got to keep the main thing the main thing. And then listen to the preacher go off onto some little tangent. Had nothing to do with the main thing. Drives me crazy. You know, we've endeavored only to do one thing in Astoria, my family. Of course, it was much smaller when we moved here. Andrew was still in the oven when we held our first services. But it was to have a church. Now we have a church. And you know what my first desire is? To keep a church. Because there's a lot of them that don't get kept. There's a lot of churches that change and move. And that's what Paul's addressing right here in the book of Galatians. And so we're going to keep preaching and teaching the Bible. And we're going to keep doing this. And then Paul gives uh, one of the most, um, how shall I say it, misused stories in the whole Bible. Paul is going to use an allegory. Now, allegory, if you remember back when we did a whole series on how to understand your Bible. And how to, uh, and I was very careful, we did not use the word interpret because we're not changing anything. We just want to know what it says. If anything needs to be interpreted, it's me. It's not the Scriptures. I need to understand the Scriptures so that I can obey them. And that's what we were trying to do. And one of the things that I preached so hard against was allegory. And now Paul's going to use one. You know what? He was under the influence of the Holy Spirit when he wrote this. And so this is a good thing. How do we know when allegory is right? Well, it's very simple. And we covered this when the Bible says so. If the Bible doesn't say so, don't you dare go there. That's how you know the difference. By the way, That's how you know what is truth and what isn't truth. Amen? That's how you measure everything, is by the Word of God. And what Paul is going to do here in these last few verses of this chapter is he starts in verse 21. Tell me the desire to be under the law. Do ye not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. 
But he who was of the bondmaid was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory? For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Now, I cannot tell you how many theologies and how many isms and schisms have been extrapolated out of these few verses. But we need to let the Bible speak for the Bible. Amen? And he's saying that the two sons of Abraham, not all of Abraham's sons were by promise. There was only one that was by promise. That was Isaac. Now, you've got to realize that Paul was using this toward the Judaizers. These were Jewish people who believed that you needed to be Jewish in order to be saved. And he says, all that you're accomplishing is behaving like the descendants of Ishmael. Now, that's a pretty harsh indictment against Jewish people, would it not be? I mean, you just couldn't get much worse than that. And that's what Paul was simply doing, because you have to understand, did Hagar, or Agar as it is in our New Testament, did she have a choice about having a child? No, she was a slave. Was there any love relationship there? I mean, we read that Abraham loved uh, his son Ishmael, but Hagar was a slave. He wasn't married to her technically. It was a, it was a terrible, terrible thing in every way. And yet, who's the one that engineered that whole thing? Sarah was. Abraham's wife, why did she do such a horrid thing? Because she was desperate to see God's word fulfilled. She was zealous, but it wasn't good. In fact, following her direction, Abraham violated everything that a marriage was supposed to be about, didn't he? It, it, was a, it was a terrible thing in every way that you could imagine. And yet, when they had the feast for Isaac's weaning, what was Ishmael doing? Read Genesis. He was mocking. You see, the imitation looks really good until you have the real thing. 
Isn't that true? It doesn't matter what it is. If you've ever been in a department store, you walk up and you see all these leather jackets. You know, oh, wow, they look really nice. And you get feel, oh, they're imitation. But wow, look how nice this is. And then you walk over a little further to the expensive part of the store and there's the real stuff. And you're sitting there going, oh, that wasn't very nice at all. Wow, look at that. You can see the difference. You can feel it. You can smell it. You can, you can know in every way. And once you put it on and wear it for a little bit, you're going to really notice the difference because the real stuff lasts. The imitation stuff falls apart. He said there was nothing good about Abraham's relationship with Hagar. There was nothing good for Hagar. It didn't help her one little bit. Ishmael, it didn't, was not a blessing to him. He was marked for his entire life. In fact, they're still arguing over it. And yet, Isaac was born a promise. There was a marriage relationship there for many, many years. They were married when they moved to the land of Canaan. They were in the land of Canaan over 25 years before Isaac was born. Do you think of all the expectations and all the hours of prayer that Sarah prayed and God said, no, no child, no, not yet. In fact, when God finally said yes, she laughed. She thought it was a joke. She said, how in the world am I going to have a child at 90 years old? I'll tell you what, the writer of Hebrews says, it took some faith. Uh, Let me tell you something. I think it would take a lot of faith to go through. You ladies who know, stop and think about what you would have to go through at 90 years old. That'd be a terrible thing. But uh, it wasn't terrible at all because it was a fulfillment of the promise. And that's all that he's saying here. He's saying, if you want to be the son of the bondwoman, but who in their right mind would make that choice? Who would want to give up the freedom that is in Christ? And that's all he's saying. That's why when we get to chapter 5, he says, stand fast in the liberty that is in Christ. He's trying to help them understand all of these different arguments that are here. The argument of the heir, the argument of what religion does and what you did before you were saved. How in the world are you going to make better what you got by faith through the things that you do? You're just going back and repeating what you were before you were saved. He said you need to understand that your zeal is not a measure of truth. It's a measure of how manipulative these people were and how easy you were manipulated by them. How many of you have ever been taken advantage by a smooth-talking salesman? It always feels really bad when you're done, doesn't it? Why did I do that? I mean, how could I be so stupid? 
Well, let me tell you something. Some of them are really good. And they can move you and turn you around and twist you. That's why God did not call you to go out and debate with the world. What He called you to do is be obedient to the truth. You see, the counterfeit looked really good to Abraham and to Sarah until she held Isaac in her own arms. Then she began to realize how wicked and foolish she had been. And she thought she could solve the problem by just kicking Ishmael out of the house. Did that solve any problems? No. And this is what Paul was trying to tell them. You're not going to solve any problem by adding keeping the law to your faith in Christ. You've got to choose one or the other. That's why he said they would exclude you. If you believe what they teach, you will have to abandon the truth that is in Christ. And if you can abandon that truth, you did not have salvation in the first place. That's why Paul was saying, I'm, I'm concerned. I want to be there. I want to make sure that Christ is truly formed in you. You can't lose your salvation, let me tell you. But the Bible is very clear. There's a whole lot of people that think they have it that don't. If your salvation isn't working, how does it work? Someone said, I still sin. I'm fighting. How how do I stop this? The work of faith is what? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. You know what? true faith does, it keeps me coming back to the foot of the cross. That's what real faith does. I'm not going to get rid of this until they lay me in the ground and my soul ascends to heaven and he gives me a brand new body. The older I get, the more I look forward to that. Amen? And I'm not old yet. I have no intentions of ever getting old. When I'm 90 years old, I'm going to stay up here and say, I'm not old yet. I have no intentions of doing that. But let me tell you something. There's an awful lot of zeal out there for all kinds of things. And not everything is bad. But if we're going to allow ourselves to be motivated, that zeal has to be attached to what this book says. Is that zeal driving me closer to God? Is it making me a better fit for His body, which is the local church? Is it making my effort being added to others' efforts so that it can be multiplied and bring glory to the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ through His church. If it's not, then, then i got to get that faith fixed because it's not the biblical faith, the biblical zeal. Because if I have that, it's going to draw me closer to the truth.
It's going to make me fit in better. It's going to make me function in the church more. Why would you choose to be a descendant of Ishmael when through faith in Jesus Christ you're an heir to all the promises that God gave Abraham? That's how Paul ended the arguments. And you know what? There is no answer to Paul's arguments except, yes, sir. That's the only answer that you can answer. I mean, you cannot believe in this book and say no to the Apostle Paul. You've got to say yes. And then he's going to spend the last two chapters saying Now that I've straightened your mind out, now let's get your behavior straightened out. Let's get you back to where you should have been. You see, the measure of truth is the Word of God. Read Galatians chapter 1. They already had everything they needed. They didn't need anything else. Could I challenge you? You already have everything you need. And if you're going to measure anything... It's got to be measured by what's written down. And we move forward based on what's written down as a church. And all God's people said, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight. We ask that your word would do its work. Lord, that we would surrender to the arguments that Paul presented here. Because not only did he present them to the Galatian church, he presented them to this church through our reading and study of your word. And Lord, we pray that we would not allow ourselves to be zealously affected concerning anything but that which is attached to the word of God. Pray that the Holy Spirit would have freedom to convict and work in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. And before we finish that prayer, if you need to slip out, spend a few moments. The altar is open.